You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be today at verse 21 through 28. Let's pray before we read this text of scripture. Father, thank you so much for this time, Lord. And we want to come now to meditate together on your word. And Lord, we want to do this because you told us to. You told us, God, to give ourselves to this public reading of the scripture and the teaching and the exhortation. And so, Lord, we want to obey you in that. And Lord, we do this because we long to hear from you. We long, God, to have our eyes open to beautiful things in your word. So, God, please help us, help us right now to do that. Lord, please give us hearts, hearts that are submissive and obedient to you and eyes to see. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Real quick, if you remember uh, where we came from last week. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 20. If you remember what happened there, it's kind of this peak moment, massive peak, mountain peak moment in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, you know, some people think John the Baptist, some people think Jeremiah, some other prophet, and they answered him. And then he looks at them and says, who do you, looking at his disciples, who do you say that I am? And this is this massive uh, first Christian confession. You are the Christ. Uh, you are the son of the living God. And it comes, you know, it's professed, declared from the mouth of Peter. You're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then Jesus goes on to speak about after that um, how he's going to build his church. And he speaks about this kingdom that he's going to expand uh, through his church and and, uh, and then the way that passage ended, if you remember it, some of you felt like I left you hanging. Sorry about that. Um, but the way it ended in verse 20 is essentially this massive thing happens. And then Jesus says, uh, in verse 20, don't tell anybody I'm the Christ. So he's just professed to be the Christ. And then the last verse from last week, verse 20 says, you know, shh, don't, don't tell them. Don't tell this publicly that I'm the Christ. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute, but let's read our passage. So coming off of that, verse 21, from that time, and that little phrase lets you know that a big shift is happening in the gospel of Matthew after this first Christian confession. Verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. 
Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's talk about the big picture of this text that we just read, sort of the, um, the high up view, the big view of it. You really can break it up into two parts. Verse 21 through 23, uh, we see Jesus giving instruction to his disciples on what it means to be the Christ. So he's just been confessed as the Christ. Now, verse 21 through 23, Jesus gives instruction on what it means to be the Christ. In fact, he even gives a correction about what it means to be the Christ. So think about that. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, let me tell you something about, you know, verse 21. Let me tell you about something about what that means, that I'm the Christ, okay? The second half, verse 24 through 28, Jesus is giving instruction on what it means to be a follower of the Christ. So first instruction about what it means to be the Christ. Second Instruction on what it means to be a follower of the Christ. Now this also would be corrective. It would have sort of a, a corrective nature to it. Because if you're not seeing clearly who Christ is, then you're not going to see clearly what it means to be a follower of this Christ. So these two things go hand in hand. If you think the Christ is, uh, as so many people did, uh, even it seems like Peter here, if you think the Christ is just going to... Um, uh, become king and raise up his army and bring, you know, bring Israel back to prominence and take over the nations. If that's the only thing you understand about the Christ, then you won't expect a whole lot of suffering as a follower of the Christ. Right? You see how these things affect each other. So he corrects their understanding of the Christ and then he begins to ex uh, correct their understanding of what it means to be a follower of the Christ. Now, this is connected back to verse 20. I told you we'd come right back to that, the, the verse that I kind of left you hanging on. So think about that. Ne needing to better understand who the Messiah is, who the Christ is, and therefore what it means to be a follower of his, that's really connected to verse 20. So just glance at it. I keep referring to it. But chapter 16, verse 20, it says, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one, that he was the Christ. Now that's, you know, if you remember last week, that's a surprising turn in the text. That's, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. Oh, man, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to expand my kingdom off of confessions like that. Shh, don't tell anybody. You see how surprising that is? It's a really surprising turn there at verse 20. Now, is that an ongoing command? And the answer is obviously no, right? Uh, we're, that's not a command for us today to tell no one that Jesus is the Christ. You get to the end of the gospel, Matthew 28, and he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. Go tell everyone. One of my uh, favorite verses, is a good memory verse of that in the book of Acts, is Acts 5.42. And you go back and read that verse, and it says, they, even though they were getting beat down for telling people that Jesus is the Christ, uh, it says, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus was the Christ. They were just ceaseless. They would not stop it. So this is not an ongoing thing to don't tell anybody that he's the Christ. This is for this moment. So, but, the, but the question is why? Why did he say, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ? Well, I, want you to, I want you to think about how confused the public is on their expectations of the Christ that's coming. So like I said, their expectation was this one that's going to, you know, unite the nation of Israel and, and, and uh, bring them back to prominence and be their king and take over the nations. That was their idea of the Christ that was coming. Not a suffering Christ, but a Christ with it, that would take on the crown that would be the king forever. Now that's not without biblical merit, right? Because that's true. You read back through your Old Testament and you find all the prophecies about the, the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. And it's about a king that would, raise his, that would reign as king forever. That would rule the nations with a rod of iron. All that's true. But they miss something about a suffering Christ. 
And so, you imagine how confusing it would be in the public if they start heralding it out. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. When they don't understand what he's saying, even within his own camp. There's correction that has, to be, that has to take place first, right? And so, don't tell anyone I'm the Christ. Next passage of scripture, he begins to help them understand who the Christ is. Before this gets proclaimed publicly. So let's come to this first section, verse 21 through 23. Jesus gives instruction on what it means to be the Christ. So what's, what is Jesus' teaching here? What is Jesus teaching his disciples? It's right there in verse 21. That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This isn't hard to understand. Jesus is communicating to them that he is the Christ will suffer. That he will suffer. That's shocking reality for people that weren't raised thinking that way about the Messiah they're expecting. But he begins to teach them that he is the Christ will suffer. In fact, he, he, he tells them he'll be killed. He'll, be su- he'll suffer even to the point of death. He's going to be murdered. And he tells them that he will rise again. So think about what Peter was expecting, what the disciples were expecting, what what the public was expecting. They're expecting a victorious Christ. And that's true. A conquering Christ. And that's right. A dominant Christ. All those things are true. And that's what they're expecting. But they're not expecting a suffering Christ. And so Jesus begins to teach them that the Christ would suffer. The Christ will suffer. Now, he also communicates here in this phrase in verse 21 that he's going to be rejected by the nation of Israel. He's going to be rejected by the nation of Israel. Think about what it says here. He tells them, he teaches them that he's going to have to go to, he he must go to Jerusalem. So capital city to Jerusalem, right? Right? And then he's going to suffer under who? It says under the elders and chief priests and scribes. It's a description of the Sanhedrin. This is the highest Jewish court in the land. And they're going to give a formal declaration against Jesus. He's going to be rejected formally by the nation. Now this also would have been a shocker, right? I thought the Christ was supposed to unite the nation and raise it back up. To its hero status. This is a shocker. But no. Jesus says I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to rise again. And I'm going to be rejected. By the Jewish nation. Christ came to suffer. And die. For sinners. And Jesus is teaching this here. Now this is. We're going to come back to this. But this is massively important. I want you to think about. What would it mean if Jesus came. And he just lived his righteous life. Perfect righteous, sinless life. He just lived it out in front of the world and then boom, took the crown, went to be king. What would it mean? What would his righteousness mean for us? It would mean nothing but condemnation. Already condemned by the law and then Jesus comes and the only human to live a perfectly righteous life which just further condemns us that we don't live up to that standard. That's it. If he goes straight to the crown without first going to the cross. If he goes straight to glory without first suffering. And so Jesus is laying out here that Christ must suffer. Now it says here in verse 21 that Jesus began to show his disciples these things. He began to show his disciples these things. Now how did he do that? How does Jesus show his disciples these things? Well, it's clear that there's some direct prophecy going on, right? Just right there in verse 21. He's telling them exactly this. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and here's the people that are going to, uh, they're going to kill me. Okay? So it's direct prophecy is one way, but I don't think that's the only thing that we have here. This isn't the only phrase. He began to teach them this. This is an ongoing thing. We're going to see this repeated over and over again throughout the gospel. Jesus is teaching them this. Now, we've got record in the gospels of Jesus actually referring to Old Testament scripture 
and showing his people that the Christ must suffer. You can go read that in Luke 24, where Jesus actually resurrected at that point. He says, ought not the Christ to suffer and then enter into his glory? And then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them and all the scriptures of things concerning himself. Right? So we've got record of him doing that. And surely there's something like that going on here. How is Jesus showing his disciples that he's going to suffer? He's giving them direct prophecy. And surely pointing back to these Old Testament passages that would show them that you've misunderstood the Christ. That Christ is going to suffer for sinners. Not only a conquering Christ, but a suffering Christ. You can imagine, I don't know this for sure, and, and we can't know this for sure, but I can just imagine him going back to Isaiah 53, right? This is a passage that all of us love so much. And can you imagine in this moment, he's just been confessed, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And he begins to tell them what that means. And he goes and grabs a passage they don't expect in Isaiah 53, which says that Christ is going to be wounded. For our sins. That Christ is going to be crushed. For our wickedness. That's going to be the will of the Lord. To crush him. To crush the Messiah. In our place as a substitute. For our sins. Can you imagine him grabbing Old Testament scripture. And helping them understand. That the Christ must suffer. Helping them understand the gospel. The cross. Now. This teaching that the Christ would suffer, it really was too much for these Jewish boys, right? It was just too much for them. That's not, that's not the way we were raised. That's not what we were taught growing up. We weren't taught that. We weren't raised that way. The stuff you're bringing into our ears is hard to hear that the Christ is going to suffer. He's supposed to be the victorious one and he's going to be killed and murdered. This is hard for them to hear. And so our passage here in verse 22, it says that Peter voices this objection. And look at it in verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Can you believe that? Can you imagine Peter grabbing Jesus by the arm, pulling him aside, and beginning to rebuke the one that he just said. Peter's so shocked by this, this revelation of a suffering Christ. He's so shocked by it that he's willing to look at the one that he just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And he's willing to rebuke him now and tell him he's wrong. In fact, he's so shocked by this that it's almost like he, he doesn't even realize that Jesus just said, I'm going to rise from the dead. I mean, you kind of read the text there and you're like, man, it's like he just it's like he just blew right past him. It's like this crazy revelation that the Christ would suffer got over. You know, it, it literally overshadows a prophecy that he's going to rise from the dead. And it's like he just ignores that and never. It'll, no, far be it from you, Lord. He rebukes him. It'll never be. It'll never happen with you, Lord. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus says in verse 21, must, look at it in verse 21. He began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. So Jesus is saying he must, this must happen. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer and die. And yet Peter's saying never. Jesus is saying it must happen. Peter's saying never. Right there in verse 22, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen. Jesus says it must happen. Peter says it'll never happen. Where was Jesus' mind? Where was Jesus' mind? It was on the, the, the words of his sovereign father. He knew what his, he knew what his father had said. So his mind is there. It must happen because it's in his word. It must happen. The sovereign one has declared it. The one that can never tell a lie. The one that's always faithful to the truth. He has said it, therefore it must happen. Where was Peter's mind? Peter's mind was on the words and ideas of men. It was on the traditions of men. That's what I was always taught. 
It's on his own feelings. This is what I feel like. This is what, this is what I want to happen. He wasn't rooting all his thoughts in the words of the sovereign father like Jesus was. Now, Jesus, in verse 23, he turns to Peter and he's going to give a severe rebuke. And there's no way around that. There's no other way to describe it is that he rebukes Peter with some severity. Look at him, verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I want you to think about why this was such a severe rebuke. Man, that's, I mean, you just, you can't read it without noticing how tough of a rebuke this was. Why the severity here? Especially if you, if you follow, you know, Peter was just commended very high. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And you're Peter. And, and on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And he was just commended so high. And now you've got this, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance. You're a stumbling block. You're not mindful of the things of God or the things of men. This severe. Why such a severe rebuke from the mouth of Jesus towards Peter? And I'll give you two reasons. One... Jesus seems to view these words from Peter as satanic temptation. He seems to view these words from Peter as satanic temptation. And it's a temptation to do what? To avoid the cross. To avoid suffering. Now in the text you see that because Jesus says you are a hindrance. You're a hindrance. That's literally a stumbling block. You're being put forward as a stumbling block to me. Something for me to trip on. I'm supposed to go to the cross. I'm supposed to suffer. And, you're, and here's this temptation. This satanic temptation that comes. And that's exactly what this is. In Luke chapter 4 verse 13. When Jesus was tempted by the devil. It says that he, he left Jesus after he couldn't make him sin. And he said he waited for an opportune time. Well here's an opportune time. And Satan takes it. And so since, I want you to think about why the severity. The, the severity is here because Jesus does not play with temptation to sin. He's being tempted to sin, to go against the will of his Father specific, specifically and go into the cross. And when it comes to temptation, Jesus doesn't pull punches. He doesn't play around with it. He doesn't deal with it with kid gloves. He deals with temptations to sin against his father with severity. And brothers and sisters, I think we can learn from that, right? We can learn from that. What did Jesus tell us to do? If your eye causes you to sin, do what? Pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's language of severity in the way you think about sin. God hates it. He despises it. And sin wants to do nothing but destroy you and dishonor God. And you see Jesus here moving with severity toward it. And I believe we should do the same. If there's some sort of temptation in your life, even right now, take this, take this as, a, as a really good reason for you to stop playing with it. Stop playing patty cake with it, right? Don't take it easy on your temptation to sin. Hate it. Deal with it with severity. Pluck out the eye. Cut off the hand. Now, second reason why this severe rebuke here. Second reason is this. Some, you know, some misunderstandings that people can have are more consequential than others. Everybody agree with that? You can misunderstand some things and it have little consequence and you can misunderstand other things and it have major consequence right therefore some misunderstandings should be dealt with lightly but some misunderstandings should be dealt with with some urgency with some severity right and so i want you to think about this if somebody misunderstands something in god's word about the sabbath that's one thing but if you misunderstand something about 
the deity of Christ, that's a whole nother, it's a whole nother animal, right? And so Peter here, Peter sees Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God. Great. He should. And Peter views himself as a follower of this Christ. That's wonderful. That's good. But the Christ he envisions is a crossless Christ. The cross he envisions at this moment is a crossless Christ. And, and listen, that is not a small issue. That is not an inconsequential misunderstanding. That, that misunderstanding has massive consequence. And so Peter needs to be jolted out of his crossless religion. And in that we see how massively important. So, it, so in Jesus' severity toward this misunderstanding, this crossless Christ, this crossless religion, in Jesus' severity, what do we see? We see how massively important the doctrine of a suffering Christ is. J.C. Rowell, he, reasoned, he, he sort of reasoned from the severity that Jesus pours out here. J.C. Rowell reasons from that and says, There is no doctrine of Scripture so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. He doesn't take it light. He doesn't deal lightly with this misunderstanding. Why? Because there's no doctrine of Scripture so deeply important as the doctrine of Christ's atoning death. So Jesus' severity here should awaken us to that, right? The cross, what does it mean? Christ Jesus who suffered for sinners, his atoning death, what does it mean? We ought to feel the importance and the weight of that, that doctrine, this idea. Now, I don't want you to miss a connection here, okay? So don't miss a connection here. This passage reveals to us a strategy of Satan. And it reveals to us how much Jesus hates it. Okay? In this passage, what we just read, what we're meditating on right now, we've got a strategy of Satan being revealed and how much Jesus hates it. And the strategy of Satan is this. Maybe somebody else has named it this before. I don't know. It's probably not even a real word. But crosslessness. Okay? Crosslessness. If you think back in Matthew chapter 4, remember Jesus is being tempted by the devil three times, remember that? And in that third temptation, what does Satan offer to Jesus? The crown without the cross. Remember that? These passages are connected. He offers him the crown without the cross. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. Just bow down to me. You can have it all. You can have the crown without the suffering. You can be king without this death, this atonement, this atoning death. You can have the crown without the cross. He offers that to Jesus. And what does Jesus say in response? Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. He says, be gone, Satan, much like what he says to Peter when Peter offers him the crown without the cross. You see the connection here? Listen, this, this is what I'm getting at. This is the strategy of Satan. Crosslessness. Satan hates the cross. Despises it. You want to believe in Jesus, historical figure? Go ahead. You might even believe him as king. You might even believe him as a great leader. As the ruler of all. But if he can remove the cross from that, from your doctrine, from your thinking, from your affections, from your love, just move the cross out of that, he's one. He hates the cross. Why does he hate the cross? Hebrews 2.14 It says that Jesus took on flesh and blood. The Son of God took on human flesh. Why? So that he could die. So that through death he might destroy the one that has the power of death that is the devil. Man, the devil hates the cross. He went to the cross so that through death Jesus might destroy the one that has the power of death. And now death can't reign over our lives and imprison us. Why? Because Jesus took our death at the cross. Man, Satan hates it. 
And so Peter wants Jesus to skip the cross. He wants him to skip the cross. And Jesus sees it as a satanic temptation and says, Get behind me, Satan. He lays a severe hammer to crosslessness. A severe hammer to crosslessness. So Grace Community Church, I want to encourage you to take this as a moment before we move on. I want to encourage you to beware of crosslessness in your life. To beware of this temptation. The Christian life is supposed to be cross-saturated. Cross-centered. Cross-focused. You know, however you want to say it, it's supposed to be full of that. I'm talking about outsiders are supposed to look in to the Christian church and look into your life and say, man, these people are always thinking about the cross. They're always talking about the cross. They're always bringing everything back to the cross. They, they even sing about it. I showed up at one of their meetings and they're just singing about Christ crucified. It should consume our lives. And Satan has all kind of strategy to remove that from you. Maybe it's just the, the you know, just, just plain, just sin, just wickedness, sin, temptation to rebel against God. Nobody's ever cross-saturated and rebelling against God at the same time. Right? Or maybe it's just distractions and busyness and your life is about so many other things that this cross-focused Jesus Christ and Him crucified is not at the forefront anymore. Or maybe it's some little, you know, you know there's all kind of doctrines in the Scriptures, right? And some are more prominent than others. 1 Corinthians 15 says the gospel which is of first importance. And by the way, the gospel which is of first importance, it includes the cross. If you have no cross, you have no gospel. The gospel is literally called the message of the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You have no cross, you have no gospel. If you're not hearing cross, Christ crucified, you're not hearing a gospel message. Understand that? And you think, and you think about that. All kind of doctrines in the Bible, and, and most prominent would be this gospel, this cross, this atoning death of Jesus. And man, there's ways that these secondary or tertiary things get all your attention. And all your affections, the next thing you know, you talk about religious stuff a lot, but not Christ and not the cross. Be warned about this. Satan wants to move you in that direction towards crossless, uh, crosslessness. Now, one more quick. We're going to move to the second part of this passage, verse 24 to 28. But one more quick thing, just on our way out of, of verse 21 through 23. Maybe one more lesson that we need to listen to here. And it's this lesson. Um, brothers and sisters, take heed. You know the verse, and in, in, in I think it's in 1 Corinthians, it says, Take heed lest you fall. You know that verse? Take heed. Be aware. Wake up. Lest you fall. And I say that because what do we see happen with Peter right here? He goes from rock to you're the stumbling block. And what got in there? Peter, your mind is not, hey, Peter, your mind is not on the things of God, but on the things of men. Brothers and sisters, what is your mind on? Where's your mind? You know, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, it says, set your mind on things above where Christ is. You know, that verse says, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What does it mean that he's seated? It means he sat down. He finished the work. It's done. That's about Christ and his finished work. Centered on the cross. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on Christ. Set your mind on his word. Not on the things of men, but on the things of God. And man, we ought to take heed to that lest we go from rock to stumbling block. Okay, let's go to this next section, verse 24 through 28. And like I said, what we see here is Jesus gives instruction about what it means to be a follower of this Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of this Christ? And this is a really important transition. Um, if your mind has been transformed, like hopefully Peter and the, and the disciples were, if your mind's been transformed about who the Christ is, now your mind's got to be transformed about what it means to follow him. What it means to be his disciple, to be his follower, right? It's very important. This is also very, very important because of our, our cultural 
context that we're in right now. What we're about to, we're about to dig into is massively important for our specific cultural context. One of the most destructive false teachings in our society is that you can keep your sin. Not much, not much has to change in your life. You can keep things your way. You don't have to bend much to the Bible at all. But you can still be saved. You can still be saved. Because you said that little prayer. And you really, really, really meant it. You said that little prayer back then. And you were really, really, really sincere. And so the, it doesn't have to change your life much at all. No obedience. No bowing to King Jesus at all. Just life stays as it is. And you just, you know, you believed in Jesus, right? And said that little prayer. And, that's, and that is a destructive, destructive thing in our society that leads so many people to hell. And that ought to burden us. And Jesus throws down the death blow on it in verse 24 through 28. Now this is a word to all his disciples. Not just Peter. Look at verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples... So like they're in a group, it's like, you get that picture, they're in a group together, and Jesus is teaching them about the suffering Christ, the suffering Christ. Peter grabs him by the arm and pulls him aside, it says, begins to rebuke him. Jesus turns on him, severely rebukes him, goes back to the disciples, and now he's addressing them all. So this is an address to all the disciples. And the question here. That Jesus is answering is what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus the Christ? What does that look like? And verse 24 gives us the overview. Gives us really the answer. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So those three things. What does it look like to follow Christ, to be a disciple? Three things. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. And that's the same thing that's told us in Mark chapter 8. Deny yourself, take up the cross, follow Jesus. Same thing in Luke chapter 9, except Luke adds daily to it. Take a, uh, d- deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow Christ. Luke chapter 14, in the same sort of line of thinking, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. In Luke 14, he says, you better count the cost. It's going to cost you something to be a disciple of Jesus. You better count the cost. If anyone doesn't renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. If you don't hate father and mother and, and, and brother and sisters and even hate your own life, you can't be my disciple. It's this radical call. Deny yourself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. I want this to be a time when we do that, where we count the cost. It says here, let's take those one at a time. Deny yourself. What does it mean? Deny yourself. It means you cannot remain on the throne and Jesus be your king. You can't be in charge of your life and Jesus be your Savior. It's just a fact. I don't care what the culture tells you. He can be your Savior, but you're still in charge of your life. No, it can't go down that way. You cannot be in charge of your own life and Jesus be your Savior. This is a call to be done with yourself in order to gain Christ. This is a call to renounce The centrality of self. That everything in your world revolves around you. Whether it's sinful desire or even the good things that you do. It's all about me. Everything involved. It is to remove the centrality of yourself. And Christ is at the center of it all. This is to leave behind yourself. This is a call to die to yourself. To die to your desires. Your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, your possessions. This is a loss of all popularity. To take on the hatred of the world that Christ endured. This is deny yourself. Deny yourself. You lose all self-promotion. 
is to lay aside self-promotion. But you don't care because you don't want to be promoted. You want Christ promoted. That's deny yourself. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I love this verse. It says, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. You are not your own. I try to put it some other way. You don't belong to yourself. You don't own yourself. You're not your own. You were bought at a price. You're a slave of another. And to deny yourself is to hit that head on and gladly. Yes, Lord, I'm not my own and I don't want to be my own. I belong to you, Lord. I'm your slave. You're my master. It says something about where your loyalties lie. Is it with yourself? Or is it with Christ? You must deny yourself. No one has ever slowly and accidentally drifted into to being a disciple of Christ. It's never going that, down that way. It's this move to deny yourself. You must come to an end of yourself to have Christ. And this says a lot because it means this. The, the, call, the call of Christ is not come try Jesus. Give him a shot. The call to Christ is not... Hey, you got your life, and I know there's some good stuff and bad stuff. Add a little Jesus on to help with the bad stuff. That's not the call. It's a call to renounce everything. Lose it all for Him. Lose your life for Christ. Now, you think about it all across this room. Like, I know almost the you know, vast majority here, my brothers and sisters. And you think about that. Everybody here, that's been the experience. So many of you here, that's been the experience of your life, right? It's not like something was going on at some point and you just added a little Jesus in. It wasn't like that, that you hit that moment where you were saying, I'm ready. I'm li- Everything else is gone. I don't care about my life. Take it all. I want Jesus. If you're here and you're in Christ, that's happened to you. Now, this next phrase says, deny yourself. And, and then it says, number two, take up, take up your cross. Right? Verse 24, if anyone come out to me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Now, in that phrase, take up your cross, we get a visual of, of how radical of a thing Jesus is talking about when he says deny yourself and follow Jesus. We get a visual here of crucifixion. Uh, take, up, take up your cross. I'm about to die. I'm headed to the cross. You take up your cross. He says right here. Now, that's really been sort of, sort of dumbed down uh, in our culture, right? That, you know, we think about the symbol of the cross or we talk about the cross. And sometimes we miss sort of the, uh, the, the, the pain of that, the, um, the horrors of the cross. We miss it because we're so used to, you know, people wear it around their neck and we, we're used to hearing it. I want to read this to you. Maybe this would help wake us up from that. This is from one of the commentators I read in Matthew, R.T. France. He says this, Christian readers have become so used to the cross as a word and a symbol that it's hard now to recapture the shudder that the word must have brought to a hearer in Galilee at the time. Don't miss it. If anyone comes after me, Jesus says to his disciples, they must deny themselves and take up their, what did he say? Did he say the cross? Shudder. Crucifixion, France says, was a punishment favored by the Romans, but regarded with horror by most Jews. And was by now familiar in Roman Palestine as a form of execution for slaves and political rebels. It was thus not only the most cruel form of execution then in use, but it also carried the stigma of social disgrace when applied to a free person. To have a member of the family crucified was the ultimate shame. Don't miss this. The cross seems so light in our mind. Don't miss it. It's like ultimate shame. Crucifixion was an inescapably public fate and drew universal scorn and mockery. And that public disgrace, as well as physical suffering, began not when the condemned man was fixed to the cross, but with the equally public profession through the streets 
in which the victim had to carry the heavy cross piece of his own gibbet among the jeers and the insults of the crowd. You see, Jesus, I want you to think about that, the cross. It's a severe thing. Jesus' call, Jesus call here is, is, it includes self-sacrifice, and it's not a light thing. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. That's not take on a little bit of a discomfort for Jesus. This is crucifixion. This is death to yourself. Complete death to yourself. Crucifixion here. This is losing your life. It's turning your back on the world. Even if it means mockery and being hated. It's total surrender of your life. I'm crucified. All my rights are gone. All my rights are hung to a tree. It's gone. I'm crucified. I'm done. It's not just a little discomfort. This is deny yourself. Take up the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. Only the man who is dead to his own will can follow Christ. So I want you to feel, that, feel the weight of that. Listen, deny yourself. Take up your cross. This is a complete shift in ownership of your life. I'm not my own. I don't own my life. Christ owns it all. I'm not at the center. Christ is at the center. Steve Lawson said it like this. Your life is no longer your life. It's his life. Your time is no longer your time. It's his time. Your possessions are no longer your possessions, they're his possessions. Your future is no longer your future, it's his future. And your treasure is no longer your treasure, it's his treasure. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. Last phrase here, number three, says, follow him. Now, I want you to think about how beautiful of an invitation that is. Follow him. Almost makes me cry even thinking about it. You get to follow Jesus. <laughs> it's not just self-denial, but it's self-denial, take up the cross, and you get Christ. You get him. Can you imagine him? Follow me. You get to walk with me. You get Jesus. Just when you thought you were being so sacrificial, just when you thought you were being so self-denying and suddenly you, you, suddenly you realize that nothing compares to what you gain when you get Christ. That nothing that you lost or that you walked away from was as precious as the one that you get to walk with. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. You can't have Jesus and stay in charge of your life. You can't have Jesus and be unwilling to take up your cross. But the moment you lose your life for him, you realize you never even really made a sacrifice. I laid it all aside. Yeah, but you got Christ. You're like that prodigal son. Remember him? Prodigal son. He left it all behind. Leaving behind my sin. I leave it all. I leave it all there. I'm going back to my father. But what did he get? I got a warm embrace from my father. They slaughtered the fattened calf. They slipped a ring on my finger. You got it all. <laughs> like that man that found treasure in the field. Remember him? Yeah, he sold it all. I sell it all. Leave it all behind. Lose it all. He sold everything. But man, he got that treasure. It was also he could have the treasure in the field. You get Christ. It's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. To be his follower. The crucified one. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. And follow me, Jesus says. Now, this radical call, now it sounds really radical, right? Man, self-denial, crucifixion, follow Jesus. This radical call doesn't mean Jesus doesn't want you to come. This is not a cold-hearted Christ, this stiff arm, go hope nobody takes the offer. This is a beautiful invitation. He wants you to come. 
And here's one of the reasons why I know that. In this text, in verse 25 through 28, what we have there are arguments. Persuade, and they're not just arguments to back up verse 24, but they're arguments to persuade you to come. Look, look at it in verse, verse 25. So Jesus just said his disciple must deny himself, take up his cross, follow him. And then look at verse 25. For, see that's beginning an argument, right? Look at verse 26. For, argument number two. Uh, and uh, verse 27. For, these arguments, is four times three, right? He's given argument, argument, argument about, he's pers- it's a persuasive thing. Come follow me. Isn't that kind of Christ to do that? He's not stiff-arming you. He wants you to follow him. He's telling you reasons you ought to. That's a kind and loving thing. And I want to be an ambassador, an ambassador for Christ for just a moment and let these persuasive arguments land. We'll take them as they are, just three persuasive arguments. Number one, Jesus says this is a matter of life and death. And we see that in verse 25. Why should you follow Christ? Verse 25. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's the invitation. Come. Why? It's a matter of life and death. Now, I know that seems backwards. and It it, it might seem backwards, but it's true. Some people call this the great reversal. It it says, if if you live for yourself, you'll die. But if you die to yourself, you'll live. It's this amazing reversal, reversal, reversal here. If you seek to save your life, which, which is, by the way, that's the opposite of self-denial. It's the opposite of take up your cross. You're seeking to preserve your life, to save your life. It's all about you living your best life. And if you do that, you will ultimately lose your life, he says here. Now, that's a threat of eternal death. That's a threat of hell. That if, you, if your life is all about you, if you seek to preserve your life, not deny yourself, not take up your cross, you will lose it, meaning you will go to hell forever. But, this verse, but if you lose, if you lose your life, and notice it says for Christ, for Him, right? If you lose your life for Christ... It's not about me. It's not about my desires. It's not about my honor. It's not about my rights. It's not about me. It's about Him. It's about Christ. Christ is my life. If you lose your life for Him, it says you'll actually find real life. Do you know a time like that in your life where you bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the King, and you lost your life for Him? And you, maybe you prayed something like, Lord, stop me. I don't, want it. I don't care anymore. I don't want my own life. I don't want my own stuff. It's not about me. I don't want my own way. Lord, whatever you want, if it means death, if it means persecution, if it means crucifixion, whatever it means, Lord, I just want to serve you. Have you had a moment where you lost your life for Christ? If you hadn't, I want to tell you, come. Jesus says, Come. That's his word, not mine. He says, come, are you weary and heavy laden? I'll give you rest for your soul. So come to Christ. Don't be deceived. If you, dis- if you decide to spend your time and your resources getting the most you can out of this life, you will lose it in the end. It's just a fact. You'll lose it. Now, that's a, that's a persuasive, so number one, that's a persuasive reason to answer Jesus' call, right? Follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Why? It's a persuasive argument. Number two, it's in verse 26. It's this persuasive argument to consider the value of your soul. Now he asked two questions to make you consider the value of your soul. Look at, look at verse 26. What will it profit a man... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So this is about the value of your soul, to persuade you to deny yourself and follow Christ. So think about this. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What, what if you could gain the whole world? 
What if really you could do that? All the power, all the money, all the resources, all the fame, everything's yours. The whole world belongs to you. You have it all. But then your soul perishes in hell forever. Was it worth it? Was that a good trade? Was that wise? Was that a wise move? Would you make that trade of temporary possession of everything you desire, but my soul goes to hell forever? And I think everybody here would say, no, that's a, that's a foolish, foolish thing. And why is that true? Because your soul is valuable. It's valuable. And yet we see people in our world forfeiting their soul for much lesser things in the whole world. Small, insignificant things. Storing up their money, their stuff, their pride, their fame. All these small little things. And they forfeit their soul and they go to hell. And it's, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> what they possess wasn't worth it. What's it profit a man? How valuable is it? What's it profit a man if he gains a whole world and loses his own soul? Second question there says, And what shall a man give in return to his, for his soul? How valuable is the human soul? What would you exchange for it? You wouldn't even exchange the whole world for it. Right? So I think the lesson there is don't be so foolish to let anything, anything, anything keep you from Christ. The things that keep people from Christ and condemn them to hell forever are much less than the whole world. Nobody's got the whole world. It's this little thing over here. This little thing over here. And I want that and I trade it. I make an exchange. That thing for my eternal soul. Now that's a persuasive argument, right? So Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. And, and number one, he's saying, because if you keep your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, you'll keep it for all eternity. And number two, he says, don't you know the value of your soul? You can gain all the stuff that's got your attention. You can gain the whole world. But what if your soul goes out? What are you doing? Wake up to that. And then the third argument, probably the most gut-wrenching, is in verse 27 and 28, where Jesus pretty much says, Consider my final coming. You know, Jesus the Christ came to die for sinners. And Jesus the Christ is going to come again. And he makes them think about that right here. Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And then He will repay each person according to what He's done. Truly I say to you, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Now our focus right there is going to be on verse 27, the second coming. That last verse is really connected to the next passage next week, so I'm going to have to leave you hanging again. But verse 27, think about that. The Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Jesus, it says here, will come again. It says He's coming with His angels. Man, that's going to be glorious to see. It says He's coming in the glory of His Father. And it says that he's coming to judge. He's coming to judge, it says here. Now, it doesn't get more persuasive than this. It doesn't get more persuasive than this. What's the call? Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Christ. Come on, come follow Christ. Listen, don't you know he's coming back? And he's coming back in glory. He's not coming like the first time. Where he came in weakness to die for sinners. He's coming like a captain and a king leading out armies of angels. And he's going to judge and everyone will stand under his judgment. Respond. Come to Christ. Quit putting it off. What are you trading in your soul for? It's a very persuasive argument here. And just... Just to get a feel, I want you to know this is a repeated thing. 
You don't have to flip there, but I want to just read a couple more that say things really similar to this about the second coming of Christ. Matthew 25, verse 31. Listen to this. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, He's still saying it. Doesn't it sound you hear? He's saying the same thing. And all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He goes on to say, "There'll be those on His right hand." Blessed of my Father, enter, enter into your Father's kingdom. They have no idea. There's no Christ crucified for them. And then those on his left, he says, cursed are you. Enter into everlasting fire, everlasting torment. He's coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. And he will judge the nations. Jude, uh, Jude 14 and 15 i read that real quick. It says something real similar. It says that Enoch prophesied this. Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Sound familiar? The Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all. And to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Listen, this is common. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And listen to this. And all the tribes of the earth will wail They'll mourn. They'll wail. He's coming. Every eye is going to see him. And they're going to wail. They're going to mourn on account of him. Oh no, he really is coming. He's here. It's too late. Mourning at the coming of Christ. What a horrific thing. That Christ returns. It's been put into your ear. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow him. I'm telling you it's the wise thing to do. You could gain the whole world and lose your own soul. If you live for yourself, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose your life for Christ, you'll gain it. And then, boom, the sky splits open and it's too late. And nations mourn and wail because they know it's coming. So, this is a sobering thing. You think about in that moment how many people will think about the tiny little thing. That kept them from Christ. Nobody had the whole world. Come on. But that little thing that kept them from Christ. And how insignificant and foolish of a thing it is. They'd have set, aside, set it aside a million times if they had another chance. In that moment when Christ returns. And here's this persuasive argument. Follow me. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. The Lord's coming back. Jesus says he's coming back. Are you prepared for this? Ask yourself that question. Are you prepared for the second coming of Christ? If you are at the center of your world, or anything other than Jesus is at the center of your world, that day will come on you burning like an oven. That's what Malachi says. And it says you'll be scorched. But if you have Christ... The suffering one, he's teaching himself as the suffering one that suffered and died for your sins. So that when he comes back, your sins are not coming before the judgment seat. If Christ is yours, if you have Jesus, and you take up your cross and you follow him. Malachi says the son of righteousness. And that day, that last day, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. And it gives you this, we almost don't get it because we're not farmers, I guess. But it gives you this picture of this calf stuck up in a stall. And all of a sudden he gets out. He says, you'll come bounce out of that thing like a calf coming out of his stall. Are you prepared for the second coming of Christ?
Let's end on that in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. And Lord Jesus, for coming to save sinners. Thank you, Lord, for being the suffering Christ. Lord, you could have held your law right out in front of our eyes and just used it to show us how far short, how far short we fall. And you could have used your own righteous and perfect life, Lord, to condemn the whole world. But you died for sinners, and we praise you for that, Lord. <laughs> Lord, thank you for dying for sinners. And thank you, Lord, for this sweet and precious call, Lord, that you call us to lose it all for you. And God, I pray that if there's any here today that are holding on to something, God, themselves, something in this world, God, I pray they'd see how meaningless it all is in light of eternity and that they would lose it all for you. God, I pray for every soul in this room, Lord, that you would awaken, you would awaken us all to eternity. And we live our lives in light of it, Lord. God, we look forward. Us here, God, who are your people, we look forward to that moment when you split the sky and you come back, Lord. We long for it. And we praise you, Lord, for the Son of Righteousness. Healing in your wings, Lord. God, help us to worship you now through this song. And Lord, through taking and remembering you through the Lord's Supper this morning. Help us to worship you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.